Hey, everyone, welcome. And as always, we'll be out at taking calls on Twitter Spaces. And if you raise your hand there, you're agreeing to uh, ask your question. And in doing so, you'll be streaming out on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, Rumble, YouTube, wherever we have our, our show, you'll find us there. Uh, today, we're going to get into some interesting territory on mental health. You know, that's something that I like talking about, as always. One guest is Emma uh, Benoy. I think I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly who herself went through a major crisis as an adolescent and has her story to tell, and Greg DeSherry, who um, has had his own struggles with mental health disorders, now working hard on the uh, service part of this, as I'm sure Emma is as well. So with your questions, you can call us at the Twitter spaces. Again, just raise your hand there. I'll bring you up. And I'm watching as well with the Rumble Rants and the Restream, if you have other questions there. And uh, when we start out, I'll maybe uh, talk very briefly about something that came in from locals today. So let's get right to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. As I was saying, welcome. We appreciate you all being here. Uh, we will get right to our conversation uh, about mental health. I want to talk a little bit about what's coming the rest of the week uh, and even next week as well. Uh, we have Ed Lattimore in here. We have uh, Marina Cohen-Stein in tomorrow. And uh, the following week, I'm bringing a urologist. I think she's coming in next week. Uh, someone I don't think necessarily wants to be identified, but came in from... Uh, locals and she was talking about urology gynecology and sexual abuse which uh, i have to tell you having you know 20 35 years on love line 20 of those years were spent dealing with the consequences of sexual abuse abuse both from the standpoint of the sort of mishandling by the medical system people coming in with pelvic pain and urinary problems like you're discussing and from the repetitive behaviors associated with trauma people's pickers being broken, so to speak, which is stuff we can get into great detail with. But I do have a female urologist coming in here to talk about that stuff. Uh, she's, But she spends most of her time putting implants in, as a lot of urologists do. So uh, that, is, that is a lot of um, what female urologists seem to be doing these days. So there we go. Uh, Susan, everything good with you? Excellent. Excellent. I uh, had my ultrasound today. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? I guess I have a big uterus. I don't know. Well, did they read it in the it's room? It's like, or? no shit. I have triplets. No, no. No, they didn't. It's nothing. There's a tiny little fibroid. I don't think there's anything. So there was no thickening of the lining, which is I, what I Maybe. I don't know. She said the fibroid's not... She's not the doctor. Like, it's just the... the right. Yeah. So they're really not allowed to talk to you very much about but it. But we talked about, uh, you know, whenever I have a vaginal ultrasound, mm -hmm. how it reminds me of when I got pregnant with quadruplets. And yes. you, you announced... How am I going to put them through college? Right. I did announce that. The first and thing I, you and said. I still, I still was traumatized by that moment. <laughs> and thank you for being sensitive to my feelings. Well, I, I, know I was it, like, how am I I know it goes down as me being an asshole, but you're continuing to bring it up. And the fact that we pulled it off. I, I was I wanted, in stirrups. I was a little. I understand. Just, you know, I, I was a little surprised. I had been reading, sitting in the waiting room, reading a Newsweek, which was a magazine that used to be very popular, uh, which was 
going on about the projective costs of four years of major university. And they were exactly spot on. And he penciled exactly one in and he got four and, and three made it. But they all made it through school. You paid for that. You also got them through graduate school. Yes, and, yes. And they kept most of the money we saved for them. So we did it. You did a good job. You, okay. You manifested it. The kids are great. They came out Manifest. Alive. That's what it took. Just thinking positively and it all happened. <laughs> That's all it took, everybody. <laughs> it, forget the no, never sleeping in the 18 hours day of work. I totally, Working that six was part television of jobs. <laughs> okay. But uh, Susan, you also then uh, very kindly, you'll, you'll text me horrible things during the day. And again, you did that today with somebody. Um, oh, yeah. I like to send you the good stuff. Yeah. Somebody who saw me on Kill Meets show. And um, this, I, I want to read this to you because it shows you how I think it cracks me up. It's like people can always find something wrong with anything. You yeah, but, say. but it's also how they don't listen. And if you listened, you, if you actually heard what I said, you wouldn't get anywhere near what this guy's saying. So I want to, I want to show you guys what I contend with all the time. So he says, at the end of Kill Me's show, you joked about Olympian Simone Biles. I was not joking. There was no joke. She had been given, there was a sort of a joke to the story, which was she'd been given a coloring book by a flight attendant. And she reported on it. She was very good natured about it. Simone was. And uh, they acknowledged their mistake. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I, about her height, I joked, which I did not. I said, I said, she is four foot eight, which is, re you don't realize how small she is and how small gymnasts are. Then he says, and under your breath said secondary sexual, whatever that means at the end of the show, like no one would notice. What I said was that it's very common for gymnasts not to have secondary sexual characteristics. Now, you're an asshole and don't know what that means. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. But secondary sexual characteristics are sort of the things that make females look female. They're called secondary sexual characteristics. And if you notice, gymnasts, Maybe don't have so much of that. Maybe no. not so much. They don't have particularly breasts. when they're they don't have hips. Not so much. And and so it goes. So shameful. No regard for her feelings of sexual abuse with the Olympics. Like well, we're now what we're does talking, that have to do? Now with we're it? talking about the mishandling by her physical therapist. Oh wow. Uh, think of others besides your dark humor. Okay. Okay. Uh, here's this the is deal. what Kilmeade goes through every day, though. Uh. uh it's I mean, I, it's what I it's go just, through every day. To be well, fair. no, you. He didn't. He was more of a fox follower so he didn't yeah. really like your I, what whatever whatever the point is you you don't don't you really people have forgotten how to read and how to listen so in every time i am faced with something somebody upset about something it's never what i said it's always what somebody heard so listen carefully everybody or what somebody said i said so i think it's really important to go back to your source and go what did you mean by that? What were you actually saying? Maybe I didn't hear it correctly. That's all I'm saying. What we're amazes me is that they take time out of their day to find a way to contact you and then just yell at you. Like yeah. that's going to do something for so what I said the was, better good. What I said was, essentially, Simone was good-natured about it. It's really serious. It's like, whoa, I can imagine she might have been upset. But she's four foot eight. You don't realize how small she is. And because I had, was running out of time, I said, and gymnasts may not have... I said something like may have had um, significant secondary sexual characteristics, meaning hard to identify as an adult. It's all I was saying. It's all I was saying. And then we went on to the next topic, by the way. So you, show, <laughs> you see how, how short people's I mean, they, are. They 
do like a rapid fire on that show, right? Yes, Where they ask you a bunch thing. of questions in a row and you just kind of keep it entertaining, you know? Thank so, you, Slapdash. I appreciate that. Yeah, it is never... I mean, Drew's out to insult people. That's what he thinks all day. Like, I'm or, going or to I'm insult in, a, I'm a gymnast today I, because, I'm, I'm insensitive. because that's my goal. Like, yeah. God. Insensitivity is what I try to... And by the way, if I, if I am doing something or off base on something... I, I'm very interested in, in hearing about it. I always like to I always like to adjust my position. We should send him over to After Dark and see what he says about that. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> that, that, who knows? Oh, your buddy uh, Jahan, Jahep, is over at Rumble Rant, so you can go Jahep. tweet on with him. Let's uh, proceed and bring our guest in. Let me get the information up here if you don't want. Yep, Emma... Benoit was a cheerleader, popular cheerleader, supportive family, but was actually suffering from a depressive disorder. There was a suicide attempt, ultimately, that left her paralyzed, and she now raises awareness about the teen suicide, let's call it pandemic, which is really what it is. There is Emma's story there. And we also have, as a guest, we've got Jerry, Desch Greg DeSherry, I beg your pardon, Greg DeSherry, he himself was living in Hollywood, pursuing um, working in the entertainment industry, but was hospitalized with co-occurring bipolar and substance disorders. So Greg is now a youth empowerment expert, mental health advocate, and filmmaker. Uh, so let's bring them both in here. Welcome, guys. Thank you for joining me. Thank Hi. You. So I kind of feel like we should start with Emma's story since it's kind of dramatic and and I, I just want to give you a chance to talk about it. And uh, I, I, I would just say that both of you could not come along at a more important time. I'm sure you're aware uh, in this COVID era, not just the anxiety and confusion around COVID that we have infected, particularly eight to 15 year olds with who are now 10 to 17 or maybe even 11 to 18 year olds, but we have blocked them from developmental milestones we have deprived them of education, depending on which state you're in, and we've prevented them from having the kind of social contact and meaning that sometimes help kids reduce their risk of mental health struggles. But uh, so now we're in this era, and Emma, a great time for you to tell your story. Yeah, I agree. I think the way that everything worked out um, is very fortuitous, and I I attribute God to that all, all the way. Um, but my story kind of started as early back as elementary school. When I was a little kid, I can remember having some pretty significant anxieties and never really understanding what it was. Mental health was not something, at least in my community, that was really talked about or emphasized. Um, and just to be quite transparent, I hadn't heard the words mental and health used together until my own suicide attempt. So I was really in the dark with what mental health was and how it affects us. Um, but my anxieties really started to take hold in elementary school. And then obviously as I got older, things became more serious, more daunting, more challenging. And I never developed a set of coping skills and I never developed even an understanding of what it was I was dealing with mentally and emotionally. So when it came to reaching out for help or, you know, letting people in, I wasn't, I was completely sheltering my own feelings and thoughts because of the lack of understanding and because of the stigma. I was really trapped under that stigma for a long time. I, and I'm guessing just the way you're describing the the development of your disorder, there, there's sort of different kinds of anxiety disorders. You're describing what sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
an anxiety disorder that goes more towards obsessive compulsive disorder. So I'm guessing you had intrusive thoughts and rituals and all that stuff you went through. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. My anxieties, what started out as my mom has suffered with anxiety my whole life. And it was very apparent to me. She, we never went on trips. She never wanted to fly. We never went on a cruise. She was always very anxious about fearful, mainly just fearful. And so that I kind of watched her experience that. And then myself, it was more along the lines of social anxiety, feeling like I have to check all these boxes in a group of friends, or I have to filter what I'm going to say before going into a conversation. Um, So that's kind of what my anxiety looked like in the early days. Um, But then obviously, as I got older, things became more troubling for me, and they lingered on my head, and that caused the feeling of anxiety. Mm. You you didn't have any of the prolonged rituals where you had to do things every morning before you could leave the house and all that kind of stuff. No, I wasn't. I w- I wouldn't say mm. that. I was not in that mm. frame of anxiety. It was more along the lines of got it self conscious anxiety. If that makes sense. Yeah, got it, got it. And, and so so you you mentioned stigma, and I, and I feel like we've done a lot of good work with stigma in, in recent years. And yet adolescents in particular are fearful of speaking out, right? They, they don't want to be different. They want to be, you know, seen as, you know, perceived a certain way by their peers. How do we get adolescents to, to be willing to talk about these things more readily? Well, I think the biggest thing that we can do is just normalize it as a whole. I think part of my experience and what the stigma really did to me and for me was the fact that I always felt like in the eyes of adults, I had to have it all together. I had to have it figured out. Mm. I couldn't struggle Mm -hmm. for a long period of time about with something, you know, I have to figure it out for the adults. And I think youth oftentimes get trapped into thinking that adults have this mentality that youth have it so much easier nowadays and that everything Mm. should be, there is no reason for anxiety. If you're a youth, that's the mentality that, youth have when it comes to adults. So I think it's just a matter mm-hmm. of shifting that mentality and normalizing this topic and conversation as a whole and letting the youth know that anyone at any phase of stage of life can struggle with a mental illness or anxiety or anything like that. Yeah, you're, you're putting your finger on something very important, I think, which is that parents don't realize how much kids well, there's sort of two versions of it. Kids generally want their parents to be proud and happy with them and about them, mm-hmm. almost without exception. Mm-hmm. But in some family systems, and in particular, and I'm not taking aim at your family, and I'm, and it's nothing unusual about what you were dealing with. But uh, we we live in the age of narcissism, and so kids are sort of extensions of parents a little bit more than they used to be, and a lot is asked of them, and uh, that can be overwhelming. And the idea of not living up to that can be shattering. Absolutely. And that was something that really harped on me in my teen years specifically was the fear of failure. I always just wanted to please mm. mom and dad. I always wanted to make them happy and proud. Mm. And I knew that the behaviors that I was doing and my passions and interests weren't really things that would make them proud. So obviously, self, like self-consciously, that was a trigger for my anxiety. Um, and you know, I feel like that's common with amongst majority of teenagers is they just want to please yeah. their parents. But it's, it's, it's the, it's a challenge. Excuse, excuse me. Let me bring uh and I think I mispronounced your name. Is it Benoit or Benoit? Benoit. 
Benoit, Benoit. beg your pardon. Uh, let's bring Greg in here. Uh, not unusual what she's talking about. I wonder what your thoughts are, Greg. No, I mean, you, you know, you asked the golden question there as far as how do we get young people to, to get over that stigma. And I think stigma is often an overused word that kind of complicates, you know, things. But, mm. uh, you know, we did a school um, presentation, well, a poll district where we did five schools in, in a day and did assemblies. And I would ask the kids at the beginning of every uh, session was, you know, if you were struggling, would you rather uh, ask somebody for help, go to a professional, go to a parent, or would you rather just keep it to yourself? A good 80 to 90 yeah. percent of the kids said they'd rather keep it to themselves, you know, because they, you know, in valid reasons from a kid's perspective, you know, because people will look at them different. Maybe they'll get thrown in the hospital. They'll have to take medication. So we really need to address that issue because, you know, you can have the greatest services in the world. But if kids aren't willing to say that they need help, then we're in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, we're the three white people are speaking from a particular perspective. I, I know dealing with people of color and with uh, economically distressed populations, there's a whole other layer of essentially, well, first of all, some folks are in survival mode in, and can't even identify these issues as mental health, but but others really don't trust. I mean, they, they wouldn't trust us. We, we don't look, you know, and so how, how do we... And by the way, they they should. We'd be I'd be delighted to help, and I have helped many many times. But you know that's just another layer of sort of denial about this. And denial is a weird, troubling problem in in mental health these days. So I'll give you each a chance to sort of address denial, Greg. You first. Yeah, well, I mean, it's something that happens on the parent, you know, the parent level, like as far as, you know, communities of color, oftentimes that that self stigma is even worse. You know, they don't want people to think they're a bad parent because their kid has mental health issues. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. therefore, you know, the young person doesn't want to be labeled as that. So, you know, for my own recovery, the denial piece was just something really to having to get over because if you, you know, that's not addressed or you get to a point where you're really, you know, knowing and truly believing that one, you have an issue and two, that, you know, there's something you can do to address that issue. You're not going to take the steps necessary to, you know, heal and really begin that recovery process. I, and I'll have Emma address this in just a second, but I want to zero back into Greg because Greg, you had two disorders that are associated with severe lack of insight and denial. Mm -hmm. it, and in my experience, you know, you add bipolar and addiction together, or substance use disorder, you you almost are in a biological state of denial, right? I mean, you really don't oh, yeah. see it. You just don't see it. And even when I would, you know, hold the mirror up, patients go, "I don't know what you're talking about." And, yeah. and so, you know, ha, is there? You have any special strategies for those? Many of them on the streets these days, many of them, you know, doing all kinds of goofy stuff that's not good for them. I'll take your advice. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. When I was living in L.A. back in the day and listen to you on K-Rock, uh, not that that has anything to cause an effect on what I'm about to tell you, but, but I was, um, thank, you know, thank you. To, thank you for that. <laughs> I was starting to uh, help immensely. You know, <laughs> I was smoking uh, a lot of high octane marijuana at the time. I was working, yeah. doing a music video, sleeping less and less. And I started to just kind of trip out for lack of a better word, end up being arrested and uh, walking naked down Martin Luther King Boulevard. I was hospitalized at Cedar sinai And that was the first time they told me I was bipolar and had substance use, you know, issues. And, you know, I was in complete mm -hmm. denial. One, what I had experienced on the mental health side was so real to me. I couldn't really buy that it wasn't real and then on the substance use well explain what you explain what you mean by that explain what you mean by that because i, I know what you mean by that but i don't think the average person will get quite what you're talking about that your delusions were real 
So talk, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you hear it referred to as like the messianic complex or whatnot, but feeling this kind of special connection with God. I was following the sun. I was this, you know, chosen one, uh, so to speak, and, you know, kind of being sober, but still kind of seeing and hearing things and having these very real experiences that were 100% real to me. I knew they sounded crazy to everybody else, but to me, they were real. So, you know, how do you how do you break through that? It's it's difficult to say the least. Uh, and then the substance use thing, I had always, you know, said I was going to be an 80 year old man smoking marijuana on the porch. I could debate you for days around the, you know, how marijuana was better than, you know, alcohol and all those kind of things. But, you know, with someone bipolar, like you say, mixing those two things, it's like when I would start to get manic and smoke marijuana, it's like I might as well have been smoking PCP because I would just go off the, you know, off the rails to, to yeah and, and these say. days and these days the the kind of cannabis that's being used the dabs and the wax and all stuff it, it it's much more Great. common seeing what you're talking about than it used to be so emma your story on denial if i'm sure people ask mine, are you okay yeah i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine yeah yeah absolutely that mine was totally and utterly self-denial i think part of the reason why i felt such a need to have such a strong sense of denial was because of the shame that i carried with having these emotions and the guilt that I carried with feeling the way I did about my life, because I was always in a state of comparison. I would always compare myself and my problems and my struggles to others. And so that really put me in a position where I felt immense guilt. I felt like shame on me for feeling so poorly about my life. It's so privileged and I have everything, you know, but then mm -hmm. you beat yourself up for feeling that way on top of those negative feelings. So my denial was honestly kind of like a, protective mechanism for me, if you will. I kind of used it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as my advantage to kind of keep away people and let people know, like, you know, I'm untouchable. And it, and for adolescents, it's because they, they're not super connected to their feelings and they don't have a clear sense of themselves in the sense that they can step outside of themselves and look at themselves. That, that's not kind of an adolescent thing. You're not there yet with that which puts you just in it and it gets very yeah. difficult to be objective then. Yeah. And Absolutely. how was your, and your treatment, Emma, what did you do to get better? Well, I unfortunately had a suicide attempt. All of these years of struggling mm -hmm. silently combinated and led me to attempting suicide. And honestly, I feel like what really ex expedited my journey was the regret that I felt immediately after making the attempt. I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I knew that I had made a mistake and I really had the opportunity to gain uh -oh. those abilities to take a step outside of myself in a way and look at myself, like you said. Um, but I really attribute the physical injuries that I had to how my recovery happened for me because I was immediately paralyzed after my attempt. So going through that physical journey really taught me a lot. It taught me values and everything. So, and yeah, of course it's, it's, I went to Yeah, go ahead. You went to, I went to therapy of course as well after the attempt. Yeah. So. You, you have two interesting sort of phenomenon there with you. One is that, uh, it's a very common thing that people that survive like jumps off bridges and stuff like that. When, when they report, um, the experience, they'll say the first thing that they feel when they jump off the bridge is, I made a huge mistake. First thing, I, this, was, this was a giant mistake. 
And then the other thing is that in spite of injury and loss, you can find gratitude, purpose, spiritual connection. I hear these stories all the time. And you'd mentioned, you'd sort of glossed at spirituality as part of your program. What, what's going on there? Well, I, my faith was born from my attempt. I was not a person of mm -hmm. faith. I really had no connection to anything spiritual until I was physically saved. And then I was spiritually saved as well right after that. And really, like you said, losing so much, losing all of my abilities um, really did put things into perspective for me. And it showed me just how much I do have to be grateful for. And all of those experiences really did lead me to my faith in God. And now I'm a Christian and I believe in God and Jesus Christ. And I live my life through that. And it really has been one of the biggest helping factors in my mental health journey is my relationship with God. And I, I always encourage people to try it out. Obviously it's not for everyone. And I want to mention that, you know, coming from the South, there is kind of this stigma that, you know, if you just pray about it, it'll go away and you can pray these things away. Um, and that's not the case at all. Uh, my faith absolutely helped me in this journey, but it wasn't that alone. It definitely took a lot of work and, and time to get to the point I'm at right now. Yeah, it, it, and again, I, 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 you know, treated many, many people, and a spiritual component, whatever that is, to the given individual, and and that's that's diff, that's all over the place. People have all kinds of different ways of having that experience, but it's always an important part. Greg, uh, I'm guessing that was important for you too. And and my other question is, did, did you help Emma, or do you guys? I'm I'm not clear why I have you guys together today. Sure. So um so. Uh, you know, I had been having the dream of working in film when I was in LA, my, all these manic episodes all started the first few happened while doing film projects. So that dream was pretty much broken. And I started working in the mental health field and started a youth program uh, nationally. And I years later got a camera and started doing little videos. Uh, I later connected with a guy, Kevin Hines, who was somebody who did jump off a bridge, the golden gate and survived. And we had done a documentary, uh, in about five years ago when we were doing a, a premiere here in Baton Rouge and we were doing a panel discussion after the film and I was uh, my sister had found Emma online and I reached out to her and asked her ah. if she wanted to be on the panel and so that's how we connected I ended up uh you know asked Got her it. if I could bring my camera to go you know kind of prep her for the panel uh and having no intention of doing another documentary on suicide but just her story was so compelling uh sometime later you know we we teamed up to do this documentary and we've just been on this journey you know trying to use it to help spark conversations, help spark, uh, you know, s enhancing suicide prevention efforts in local communities. And, you know, thankful we could able to do a good amount of that so far. Where can people see it? Um, so right now we're just doing a community screening. So we're having uh, both community screenings online and, and in person. Emma's doing quite a bit of travel. Um, you know, basically with a topic like this, it's, it's real beneficial and impactful to, to see it in groups. Uh, so, you know, we're planning, uh, we have kind of set up a, a PBS broadcast, national broadcast. We're just, uh, you know, have that opportunity. We're still looking for underwriters and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, one day we'll have it on, you know, and, uh, streaming. I'm, look, I'm looking for it's a, a worthy project. I, I, but I can imagine having Emma there to answer questions afterwards is really part of the power of, of what you guys are delivering. So, so, and again, if they want to be a part of something like this, is there a website they go to? Myascension.us. Yeah, um, my, yeah, myascension.us. Uh, and, you know, we're real active on uh, 
Facebook, my Ascension and Instagram right. and that sort of thing. So we'd love yeah. people to connect with us. And, you know, we work with a lot of different organizations around the country that are doing this work and collaborating. You know, there's literally thousands of organizations around the country. A lot of them oh, are, yeah. you know, call like moms or family members lose a kid to suicide and they start a nonprofit yeah. and, you know, are doing great works in their local community. So we've been blessed to be able to kind of link up some well, and, and since you've had the substance history too i mean you can do a lot of work on that side too i mean the the kids are getting lost hand over fist to fentanyl right now mm-hmm. um oh, yeah. we are going to take a little break i've got lots of people with their hands up that want to come to the come to the fore here and ask questions i assume it's of you guys but we'll see and uh, on my restream i have a bunch of uh mm, armchair comedians and pull back, pull back on Greg for me, uh, Caleb, if you don't mind, because uh, I'm going to show you something. Pull back. <laughs> we on, like your set. It. Don't say. We it. like your set. Pull back. Just give me a full, or ha- just give me Greg. A full Caleb. screen. Yeah, either a full screen or uh, or at least two thirds of the screen, but just Greg. There you go. <laughs> so behind you, behind you, there are these there are these giant X's, and my my on your work, barn door. My restream has decided that. Yeah, this is. I love the color scheme, by the way. X gets the square. You're on Hollywood <laughs> Squares. If you look behind you, it really looks like it really looks like yeah. Circle gets the square where your head is, and X gets the square. Where, Our family where, feed. That's even. Funny. No, no, I it's, love it's that. X gets that square, square reference. I actually am yeah. a big fan of uh, Malcolm X, and I love orange. And I was a bit manic one day, and I decided to paint the X's on the door orange. Just, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, and, I like it on Hollywood Squares. Peter Marshall. Uh, Peter Marshall would love it, and so would oh shoot, what's his name from Dance with the Stars? When Drew was on Love Line, the TV show, he and Adam were on yeah. Hollywood Squares. The voice. Tom Bergeron. Like Tom Bergeron was the Tom, Tom <laughs> yeah. Bergeron was the guest then. Should and bring that show was the back. Host then, rather, yeah. All right, so uh, let's do take the little break, and um, when we come back, we'll get right to calls. Here we go. I think we have found the holy grail of skincare. Genucel has absolutely changed, certainly my skincare regimen. I like that vitamin C serum, the under eye creams, skin nourishing primer. Susan loves the eyelash enhancers, uses it on her eyebrows as well. Genucel has everything to make us both feel and look amazing. Best part, the quality of the products. Using pure ingredients like antioxidants, copper peptides, and a proprietary calendula flower base, Genucel knows how to formulate products to perfection without irritation. For Susan, she hates that annoying dry area under nose during allergy season, like right here. She's tried everything, but no matter what, the skin is flaky and dry. Nothing seemed to help until she started using Genucel's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer. It soaked right into the skin. She was hooked after one use and now loves all of their products as well. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because... It's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Right now, you can try Genucel's most popular collection of products and see what I'm talking about for yourself. Go to Genucel.com and enter code DREW for 10% off. That is G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com and the code is D-R-E-W. Chest. So, Caleb, uh, we have no idea if that uh, sound went out because it didn't come into our studio or into the Twitter spaces. <laughs> so we gave commentary to the Twitter spaces, but I don't know if the rest of the what? Uh, ad went out over the uh, restream. Uh, Can you, you hear me now? Us? Caleb? Can you hear me? 
Can anybody hear us? We can't hear anything. <laughs> Wait. No, they didn't hear. Tom Cigars came through. Oh, wait, sound is good. Can we everyone hear me? Oh, we didn't hear. Yeah, we're good, but the uh So we're we are having technical difficulties. Yeah, we lost our Atlanta. The only uh, people Alabama that can connection. hear us are probably Twitter right now. So All right. Well, if the audience can, can hear me, streaming out, I put it in the chat. We've lost the the uh, Alabama connection. I can't hear Caleb. I can't either, but uh, I think I can still take calls, so let's go do it, shall we? Well, let's see if anybody I can hear Caleb if that matters. All right. Uh Okay. Anthony, we're going to get you connected up here. I hear it loud and clear on my end. Oh, there we are. We got everybody back from Alabama. But hold on, let's take... Anthony, before you speak, give me one <laughs> second here. Caleb, are you back with us? Yeah, don't cough into the mic. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Drew? I can't hear Caleb. No, we can't. I can't. Maybe the guest should mention, talk to you and see if... Can I you hear... Can, I hear we, you. Oh, oh, we see you now. Now it sounds very weird. But uh, I can hear we didn't get the commercial at all. We didn't get the sound on the commercial. And we uh, did a voiceover for the Twitter spaces. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. I think the uh, audience can hear me. Out, uh, and Go we to drjew.com. And we really can't hear you at all right now. But we hear our uh, callers over at Twitter spaces. So. Yeah, I can hear that. Can I can't hear the guest. Uh-oh. Now everybody fine. And uh, I'll get to Anthony in the meantime. Okay, Anthony, Anthony. Anthony, go right ahead. Well, thank you, Dr. Drew. Thank you, Susan. You you guys kind of uh, hit a nail on the head with the suicide rate when it comes to, like, urbanized areas. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a um, mentality of you can't look to the next day. You're currently stuck in the here and now. Yeah. And uh, growing up growing up homeless, growing up with no money. We didn't know where we we're going to eat as a kid that brings on so much trauma, especially, I mean, I had a very rough childhood, especially growing up in the Hispanic community. You're, you're pretty much deemed, you know, weak if you admit that you're struggling. Yeah. And that's one of the things we're not yeah. allowed to do is say, we're struggling. We can't make it. Um, I mean, for God's sakes, growing up with two parents who were maladaptive but tried their best, that's another issue. It's like this compound trauma that we're dealing with systemically now mm -hmm. where where do we stop and reassess where we're at? I mean, growing up, I'm one of the very few. I became a therapist and uh, instead of going the other way, I mean, I was selling drugs with my dad at the age of eight. I was holding the bag. I didn't know at the time. These were just common things. And then trying to understand why we had no house, why we lived in motels, um, why were we always begging for money? Where I mean, uh, there's instances where I would grow up in a motel, a hotel or motel and there wouldn't be food on the table. I'd have to go to the uh, the uh, lobby, and it was like a mom-and-pop type of motel, and I would eat um, Indian food with the Indian family that owned the place because they knew I had no food. Mm. As, the, as you grow up, though, and nobody explains anything to you in the field that I, that I work with with my clients, that's the number one thing I do here is no one explained to us that this was not okay, that – being not okay was okay. It was, you got to suck it up. You got to keep going on. And if you don't, you get left behind. Mm. Um, it was, it was adamant in school. You were not to tell anybody that you were homeless because you would be picked on. You would be targeted. You had mm -hmm. kids that looked down on you, just like your guest said, they don't want, the kids don't want to be chastised or outcasts in, uh, the school setting because many times that's where we find our 
our solace yep. is in school because right. we have our teachers. We feel safe. We don't have to worry about somebody coming to steal the bag that we're holding that has drugs. We don't have to run. But then where do we talk about it? And that's one of the things that I, I struggle with in the field is how do I get these kids to talk about these things? And one of the things I'm kind of coming to the realization that's hard to realize is we can't save everybody. Mm. We just can't. It's yeah. not doable. Well, let's uh, let's get Greg in on this first. I'd say because you're you're asking the you know the, the question we all struggle with, and you're bringing up the issue of trauma, which we've not yet talked about, but right. that's a major issue in all of this as well. Yeah, you brought up a lot of you know great issues. I mean, the trauma issue is huge. You know, even even today, you know, even if you get people from a point to thinking that trauma is you know is more than just what you get at war and recognizing sexual trauma and things like that. I'd seen something for a speaker where he was talking about, you know, post-traumatic stress, but he was saying, which is what we talk about the military, but now we got so many kids that it's not post-traumatic stress, it's current traumatic stress. They're living in these, you know, mm -hmm. neighborhoods and environments where we're riddled with drugs and violence and, you know, parents that aren't great parents. And so, you know, and that produces a lot of responses that are often mental health issues or, or you know, things that present similarly but I think what, what you know, you were describing of, of becoming a counselor is so tremendous and having more people from those, you know, communities, as well as people with that personal lived experience is is really crucial. And I know, you know, back from when I was in, in school, there, I think, and it's changed a lot over the years, but they would have this, uh, you know, with kind of the code of ethics that you're not supposed to divulge anything about your, you know, personal life or experience. But I guarantee in the work that you're doing, if you share, able to share a little bit with people that, you know, where you've come from, where you've been, that's going to be tremendously beneficial for them. Cause it's kind of the, you know, the same thing with what Emma and I are doing is sharing your experience to help others. Emma, you want to comment? Um, no, I'm, um, I mean, no. Okay, good. I mean, yeah, that sort of says it all. And, and Anthony, yeah, thank you for the work you do. As you, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a, a fan and I'm a I, fan of yours too. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with Greg wholeheartedly that it's one thing to be careful in a in a closed setting with intensive psychotherapy with what you divulge about yourself. But if you're in front of a group of kids that are suffering and you want to reach them, you tell them your story. You go ahead and do that. I think it's completely impactful. And uh, did you think that Anthony is Anthony Brown? No. Oh no, I don't. Different Anthony. Yeah. Okay. No, we're the two. We're the two other. You guys always get us mixed up with yeah. Anthony Brown and uh, Anthony Garcia. I'm the psychologist or a psychotherapist. Anthony Brown is just the man right. when it comes to the man. <laughs> but but Anthony, he is the man. I love Anthony. <laughs> Anthony Brown is the man. But Anthony Garcia, tell us, tell, give a brief plug on your organization. Yeah, so we are the Spread Hope Like Fire. Sorry, the Spread Hope Like Fire Foundation. Mm -hmm. We I founded it to break the stigma on mental health. Um, Anthony Brown is actually going to be on the podcast, thanks to Dr. Drew, uh, connecting us. Um, it's just us getting together and humanizing our humanistic struggle. That's one of the things too that I've noticed that we can't break down all these issues with the mental health because none of us want to buy into the fact that we are in the human condition and to buy into that you have to agree you're gonna have to suffer yeah i completely agree not, not just suffer but recognize that you are finite biological you get sick like anybody else and the brain gets sick like any other organ 
and yeah, it has a social and an interpersonal context, but uh, it, it can it has a treatment also. Thanks, Anthony. I got lots of other questions I want to get to here. So uh, this is Choose to Live, another uh, uh, whoops, another organization. It sounds like we we'll get her coming up here. I don't know who the speaker is. Uh, go ahead and un unmute your mic. Um, is it me that it is that's you? On? It is you that's on. Hi. Hi, Emma. Hi, Greg. My name is Robin Walsh, and I um, am also a suicide survivor. So I have a question for Emma. Okay. Um, I started a nonprofit called Choose to Live in Lee Summit, Missouri, and we are so blessed to be able to. We're going to be showing your documentary August 11th. So I want to thank you for everything and for allowing others to share your story across the world. Um, I have two questions. One, everybody that I talk to and share your story wants to know how you're doing with your walking. And then I personally have a question for you. Um, when I advocate for breaking the stigmas and speaking out about suicide awareness, and I come across a family who has lost a loved one by suicide, mm. do you have suicide, um, survivor's guilt? There are times that when I share my story and I share how grateful I am to be here after my suicide attempt at the age of 21, and now when I advocate, I sometimes feel guilty that I'm here and their child isn't. So did you go through um, a feeling of survivor's guilt when you talk and meet with these families who did lose somebody? Good question. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you for reaching out and I'm so grateful that you are going to be showing the film. It means the world to me that you are using my story in that way to help others. Um, and absolutely. I definitely had some survival survivor's guilt in the very beginning when sharing my story. Um, but something that really has shifted that mentality for me has been sitting with loved ones that have been left behind and just talking to them and letting them express what they have to share with me um, and let asking them, asking them questions about their loved one that has passed away seems to put a different tone on the conversation. But I think what really shifted that whole survivor's guilt feeling for me was hearing from loved ones that were left behind that hearing my testimony, hearing my story doesn't make them feel any type of way negatively. It makes them feel um, at a sense of peace. Um, and that's just strict, strictly from what they've told me from me sharing my story with them. They've just said that, you know, when you share your story and your journey, specifically the part about how I had instant regret, that gives them a sense of peace. And it also kind of allows them to think about their loved one in a different way. Um, but definitely dealt with some survivor's guilt um, in the beginning, but certainly not anymore. And then to answer the question about my walking, I am no longer in physical therapy at the moment. Um, and that's mainly because I have recovered to the point where I am comfortable with my life. I can walk my walker. I use my walker every day. The only time I use my wheelchair is out and, out and about, like out in public and stuff like that for endurance purposes. But I have regained all feeling. I'm fully can feel every um, wow. part of me and I, I have regained um, full muscle activation in all of my limbs mm. minus my left hand is still paralyzed. But aside from that, mm. I'm fully functional. I'm not able-bodied, but I'm 
I have a disability, but I have a lot more abilities than I did in the beginning. So. Wow. How fortunate. So, so it, is it, is it coordination of the lower limbs? So it's like this spinal cellar, cerebellar yeah, tract, so, something like that. that got yeah, injured? So my injury, yeah. Yeah. So my injury was to the spinal cord. I had a blood clot form on my spinal cord, pushing down from C5 to T2. Um, and then after that, I suffered several strokes. So I'm dealing with the spinal cord injury and the stroke um, injury. Um, just the coordination and endurance is the factor that has I'm, kind of- I, I, I'm sorry to, to ask such a specific question, but I hope you don't mind, but it's fascinating to me. Did, did you have a did you have a tear in one of your spinal arteries or something? I, the stroke is so, no. so unexpected. Yeah, so um, I guess I should give some context. So my attempt was by firearm. I shot myself in the chest and the bullet entered and exited through just below the base of my skull. And because of the entry and exit of the bullet, it caused a lot of internal bleeding. And that's what caused the uh, blood clot to form on my spinal cord. And after that, I suffered strokes during surgery to repair the artery with a stent. Um, but the blood clot was there for several days in the hospital. And they right. think that right. because of the time that it was sitting there, it was causing permanent bruising to the spinal cord. But once they got right. the clot removed, then I could begin progressing in therapy. Um, but there is right, right. that type of damage. Yeah. So, so let me explain to people. So, so it sounds like you nicked an artery, probably one of the spinal arteries, which is why they had to go in and put the stent in. And that's where the stroke happened as a complication of that procedure. But there was an arterial bleed into the essentially subdural space of the spine, which pushed on the spine arterial pressure. It's much like getting a bleed in the top part of the head. It can be quite devastating. And it injures the spine, but that pressure injures it. But it sounds like a lot of it came back, which is amazing. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I, okay, let's I keep. Wanted, I want to say that going. real quick. My, my carotid artery was severed. So that was the initial. Carotid artery. Was so it was I a carotid artery injury. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, all right. We're going to get Hunter up here and get his questions. Uh, Hunter, go ahead. Hey, Dr. Drew. Um, I just wanted to go back to what Greg was saying. Um, I really identified with that. Uh, I myself am bipolar and a recovering alcoholic. You know, um, I've been there, you know, thinking delusions are real and then coming back down and realizing like how embarrassing that is to try to explain mm. that to people. Mm. And I think that ties back in to social stigma, you know, society making us feel ashamed for being different or going through really intense personal experiences that most others won't. You know, so I, I just wanted I would, to thank Greg for saying that. I totally agree with you, Hunter, that it's, it's great that Greg is speaking about it and great that you are speaking about it. But I, I would argue it's, it's that, you know, think about it this way. This is the way I think about it. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. That we have shrouded mental health and secrecy throughout human history as opposed to helping people go, oh, would Hunter have these feelings of inflation and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't sleep and he's spending a lot of money and he, he thinks he's connected to the sun or something. Oh, that's his, uh, oh, that's easy to identify. That's his bipolar disorder. Let's go help him as opposed to what's wrong with Hunter. 
You know what I mean? There should be no stigma around it. It should be an easy putt for people to go, oh, I know what that is. That's this brain thing that makes Hunter behave like that when he's when he's drinking or whatever. Would that be a more helpful way to do it? Um, I think that definitely there's a ton of confusion shrouded around mental illness. Um, I think that people um, should be more vocal when they're experiencing mental health issues so others can start to learn, yeah, these are things that real people do go common, through. Common. And have common things. These are common, Andrew. Well, Greg wants to talk. Let's say Greg in here. I see Greg chomping at the bit. Ahead, yeah, Greg. no, I mean, there, I was trying to think of the name of it, but there was a documentary a while back that, you know, in in Western cultures, I mean, what you do is somebody experiences what myself or Hunter does and, you know, you put them in the mental hospital, you get them on psych meds. And, you know, in a lot of other cultures, they kind of see that as a gift, so to speak. And it's like, they'll bring them in and nurture them and the shaman will talk to them and all that kind of stuff. You know, obviously that's more difficult to do in this uh, society and day and age and people, you know, want to protect and, and kind of rightfully so. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not an easy, you know, it's not an easy answer. Um, myself, you know, was someone who wasn't like, Hey, let me go check myself into the mental hospital. I was one that, you know, the cops would come get me, put my hands behind my back. Most of the time, take me to the, you know, to the mental hospital because I had a, you know, family who Same had the wherewithal to get me petitioned and put in the hospital and, and that sort of thing, which, you know, in reality saved my life. But, you know, for some people that doesn't, you know, work and they find that very, uh, you know, demeaning and breaking people's rights and, and whatnot. So it's, it's just, it's just complicated. <laughs> it, it, it is complicated, but it isn't because treatment works. And when people cooperate with treatment, they get better. And when they get better, they look yeah. back and go, who left me like in that shape, who let me behave like that and stay in that shape when I was so sick. And let's remember bipolar disorder, manic patients are more likely to kill themselves when manic than depressed. This is a misconception people have. More likely to kill yourself in a mania than in a depression. Very common. And addiction is a illness that progresses to death. You die of addiction. Both life-threatening problems. And it'd be great to also consider you special and, you know, and being right, right, a shaman yeah. and all those good things. I have no problem with that at all. But, 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 to let it uh, a fatal illness just progress is troubling to me, so that's mm -hmm. my thing. Hunter, thank you for calling, buddy. You're fine. You're good. Yeah, I I I love working with bipolar patients and alcoholics and addicts because they're extraordinary and they're creative and they're smart. And to to the fact that you have to feel marginalized because of those conditions is weird to me. So I'm sorry you have to feel that way. Well, thanks for your support, man, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak. Really yeah, appreciate it. You got it. Yeah, thanks Can't for sharing the that. Drug Hunter. use also cause the bipolar yeah, disorder? It's, it's a, these are comp we're That's not getting what, into the nuances of, uh, but of diagnosis. They also like really, <laughs> they really fed the denial for me because I would for years be like, well, if you know, the drugs really aren't a problem. If I just take these psych meds, I'll be okay. Right, or, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't really need these psych right. meds if I don't so, do drugs. And it was just like this, you know, really feeds that denial. Which one is sponsored? It's just you, you literally... Yeah, you, Susan, you literally, when you have somebody using... Yeah, manic, I saw Paulina go through it. Yeah, but you literally can't tell either it's either or both or which causing right. what. You just you got to just kind of treat both. And then you see where you are. Um, and the recovery is very similar on. for both, too, other than, you know... The oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And very these are common, common things. Ilana, I think you've changed your, uh, your picture. Uh, what's going on? Hi, Drew. And yeah. hi, Emma and Greg. Um, so 
what I wanted to, I don't really have a question. It's more of a statement. Um, my sons, I live in Palo Alto and my kids went to the high school that had two suicide clusters mm. in six years. The CDC did come out to investigate. And um, the problem is, is it's still continuing on. And, you know, the schools talk a lot about mental health and support, but there's so much, I mean, it's, it's such a multifaceted mm -hmm. problem and issue. There's mm -hmm. a lot of um, academic bullying by peers there's academic requests from the parents. So it's, it's, it's just um, it's a very sad situation in an area that financially has support um, to be able to help. Um, and then you're having the post-traumatic. Well, let, let me, you know, I'm going to say something. Allow me to say something that, that, that I, I did, you know, I was screaming earlier about this rapid fire story thing I was commenting on on Kill Me's show. But one of the things I commented on was Tom Brady being very fearful what money, his his fame and money was going to do to his kids. And I, and I knew people would react to that very negatively. They were extremely harsh on him. Like, oh, you're it's so horrible to have all that privilege and money. But... I, I, the, the, what you're talking about, you're kind of talking in the same zone here, and and it prompts me to say, mental health problems develop in all aspects of our human society. It and and I, the one thing I will tell you, again, having worked at a psychiatric hospital for decades, was the very rich and the very poor were the groups that were overrepresented in the psychiatric mm -hmm. hospital. They're the ones that had the most stuff going on. Um, but it occurs everywhere. And because it's a school, Alana, with you know privilege and, and resources, doesn't mean uh -huh. there aren't their own significant mental health struggles. Oh, there there absolutely are. There absolutely are. And it's and it's you know interesting how just you know you, you see the ones I don't know. Go ahead. I, and my kids have, I, you know, I, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've seen were effective in, you know, wealthy schools and not so wealthy uh, schools is just the the point of getting young people involved as being part of the solution. You know, in our film, there's a group called Hope Squad that uh, has groups around the country, but it's basically that peer-based suicide prevention or just, uh, you know, wellness thing where you, you know, this issue is so big. If the young people aren't mm -hmm. involved, they're really on the front lines of this, you know, suicide epidemic that's taking 20 young people a day in the United States. We really got to do that. I mean, I think that's one thing that parents can really advocate for. Teachers can really advocate for because, you know, I mean, we've seen in the recent time so many people up in arms and going to the school board about pretty trivial things, in my opinion. But, I mean, you know, parents have a lot of power to really go and advocate for, you know, for mental mental health and opportunities for, you know, uh, peer groups in, in high schools and, uh, you know, junior highs and stuff like that because, you know, nothing really of significance is going to take in, in, until it's really kind of demanded and more people are standing up. You know, we see all this with with the school shootings, which is obviously horrific, um, but gets tons and tons of attention. And we've lost literally hundreds of thousand, hundred thousand more kids to to suicide than we have in school shootings. And, you know, how much attention is really given to that and resources devoted to that. And so I think we've definitely got a lot of, you know, a lot of work to do, but there are a lot of great people doing work already. So.
And uh, Miss Kitty over in Rumble is saying, you make drug addicts of children by placing them on these meds, then when they turn 18, they have full-blown drug addiction. Uh, no, Miss Kitty, the data shows exactly the opposite, in fact. And do not mistake a mood-stabilizing medication, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, a dual agent, a benzodiazepine, a opiate, a psychostimulant. These are all extremely different categories of medication. Don't get me wrong, overprescribing is a massive problem. I'm totally with you. But the things we have to worry about are the psychostimulants, the benzodiazepines, and the opiates. The others, you know, have sort of, again, limited efficacy in adolescence, uh, but they do not trigger addiction. In fact, even Adderall, even the psychostimulants, um, I when we when I started seeing the um, the meth epidemic happening in the '90s and early 2000s, because I always thought cocaine would just wipe meth aside, there would not be a big meth problem. And so when the amphetamines came on, I thought, oh, it's got to be the Adderall. It's got to be we're causing all this, much like Miss Kitty suggesting. But I looked at that data very carefully and monitored it for years, and it's not so. It's not so. Um, but I do feel that if you continue psychostimulants after age of 18, you can get into trouble if you have the genetic potential for addiction. But again, addiction is a... You know, is a specific disorder. It's not, it's you can't make you, you can trigger addiction, but you don't make an addict. So, all right. So, uh, Lana, anything else? Thank you for coming up. No, just to, to let Greg know, the students have requested and created and are demanding um, support and mental health support. And the school district and the parents are trying, but not to the extent of what the students want. So it's really interesting to sort of watch the whole thing. And my kids are out of the high school. They, they're older now, they're in their twenties. So, but I still feel very, you know, like this was my school or this is my kid's well, school. And, and again, the, all the COVID isolation and all that business mm -hmm. made everything worse, I'm sure, right? A bazillion times worse. A bazillion yes. times. That's a, that's a scientific term, right? Bazillion? Is that, Absolutely. Yeah, so, okay. We lose we use it all of the time in my office. Yes. Right, a lot of thanks. Thank you. Okay. Uh let's see if we have time. We have running out of time here, guys. Uh uh, uh shoot. A lot of people are wanting to ask questions. Uh, you can go a little long if you want. Yeah. Um Okay. Caleb, why don't you ask that question and we'll let both uh, Emma and Greg uh answer your question. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So I was just, I was curious because of something that she had just brought up. I was wondering if there are any studies that have figured out what causes suicide clusters in schools. Like when it, it kind of seems like it washes over one group and then the next group. I, is there a science behind that or do they understand the reason why? Greg, first. Yeah, I mean, not really. I think there's, you know, there's some things with the contagion, but then there's some of these clusters where the kids didn't even really know each other or didn't know about the other person. So that's one of the, you know, tricky things is, I mean, there's great researchers that are working on this and have been for years, but there's just so much uh, that's really unknown that's, you know, predictive and can really get down to the, you know, to the, to the why. I mean, there's, you know, predispositions and, you know, certain, uh, you know, things like if you've had a previous suicide attempt or if you have a, you know, uh, you have history of mental health issues and stuff that, you know, make you more uh, likely that you may attempt. But I think I'm not that I'm aware of to that question. Emma. Yeah. I don't think specifically there's any correlation on just, 
from my personal experience. Um, I know from myself, I had a suicide attempt in June of 2017. And then shortly about a month later, a class, a classmate of mine died by suicide and I had, wasn't friends with him, just had seen him in the halls. So we were on two different sides of different, basically different groups of people and he died and I had an attempt. And then similar to that, something totally was um, in Minnesota, there was a young girl who died by suicide. And then shortly after that, her boyfriend died by suicide. So I think it's all kind of circumstantial. I don't really think that there's correlation. Granted, in some instances, I'm sure there is correlation. Um, but overall, from my experience and my knowledge, there isn't correlation. It, it, both Emma and Greg are right in that it's complicated and you can't point at one thing, Caleb. There, There is contagion of human behavior and suicide is one of the things that becomes a contagious process, but it's not as powerful as we might think. You could also argue that whatever the circumstances are in that community or at that school that set off the initial suicide, we're influencing other kids in that area similarly, or whether it was lack of access or lack of you know, uh, openness to the, the idea of getting help, whatever it is, there's a million different reasons in terms right. of the environment and in terms of the individuals that, that can get, go this way. Um, you, you can, you know, for, for males, you know, they're more likely to complete, complete suicide than females. There's that they're more likely to use firearms than females, but the women have been catching up in recent years and, you know, it's, it's sort of equalizing to some extent. So it, it's, it's very hard to know exactly what all the factors are for a given so-called cluster. But you'll see, you know, kids get cluster with eating disorder. They cluster with cutting. They cluster with, it just tends to be the way things do go. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's easy to say contagion, but exactly what we mean by that is not entirely understood. Right. So I just, I read sense? about that and I, yeah, it makes sense. It's just so strange to me that they haven't done any more like widespread studies to figure it out. It's like, well, oh, they're, the, they're constantly, they're, they're trying to figure it out. Trust me. They're trying to figure what's it out. What's the pattern to yeah. it? In, fa in fact, in fact, I don't know if you guys are involved with this new mental health helpline, this 988 line. Have you guys heard about this? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. yeah talk, talk about yeah. it. Because this is this is yeah, so. here, here's one of the well, let me just say I just want to say that that one of the success stories in suicide awareness is suicide awareness and suicide helplines. These are these have been mm -hmm. shown to be impactful on on the suicide attempts and rates. And now the government, I think, wisely is going, huh? That worked. I wonder if we could do a mental health sort of emergency line, much like the suicide helpline. Mm -hmm. And that just got approved like last week. But uh, Emma, you talk to that first, and then we'll have Greg yeah. talk about it. Yeah, 988, that just got approved, I think, July 16th. And that was huge from my perspective because I can remember being a teenager and I had heard of the 1-800 number. Um, obviously, when I was in school, the song by Logic wasn't out yet, so it wasn't that big of a deal in like mainstream media. Um, but I had heard of the number, but never would I have ever thought to utilize that number, Not especially not in a moment of crisis. It's just not practical. It's not realistic to think that a youth in their moment of crisis is going to remember to make that call and use that number. Um, so I think having it in a three digit number, similar to how 911, we all know 911, right? It's, it's universal. So right. I think converting it to more of a universal, very easy to remember. You could teach your children that 988 is the helpful line. So I think overall, it's just going to be so much better and more useful in prevention. Um, I'm all for it. And I 
really am finally grateful that it's happened and it's finally come to fruition. Good. And yeah. Greg, so you, it's, your it's point? Yeah, it's been a number of years in, in the making. You know, some just amazing advocates really advocated for this. It was approved by the Senate years ago, and then the FCC just approved it two years ago. And so, for whatever reason, it takes a long time through the all the different carriers and whatnot, and it went active on on this uh, on the sixteenth. But basically, you know, it's a twenty four hour crisis center. It's a former uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and so this is their new three digit number. Uh, you call, you get to talk to a licensed, uh, you know, cl or clinician who can kind of, you know, hear what you're going through. Most of the calls are resolved right there, but they can also refer, refer you to resources. The real cool thing about the expansion is it's mental health and substance use. So, um, you know, when you call that, you're routed to a call center in your own community by your area code. So right. more than likely, if right. I call from, you know, Louisiana, my area code, then I'm going to be talking to somebody in Louisiana. It's still really in development. It's one of those things that was kind of partially, you know, partially funded. Uh, and it really varies state to state as far as the robust nature of the resources that are available. Mm. Some have crisis okay. mobile teams, some have a lot of beds and services and programs, some not so much so. Well, we'll look forward to that sort of being built out. I, I know here in Los Angeles, if you remember, they had, we had a thing called Teen Line that Cedar sinai put together. It was very successful teaching adolescents how to do active listening to their peers, and they had a lot of great success. And it makes me wonder if uh, the 988 could have sort of a subcategory of peer-to-peer -peer kinds of stuff maybe going on. You guys, we've yeah. kind of come to the, the end of our time together. I want to give each of you a chance to kind of wrap up. Greg, your last thoughts. Sure. Well, we just appreciate you shining light on this, you know, issue of, of mental health and suicide prevention. I think one thing that we just need to always kind of think about and the Surgeon General talks about it is really addressing the upstream factors. You know, it's really crazy to me that we're not, uh, you know, really engaging young people in much earlier ages, elementary school, high schools with, mm -hmm. you know, mental health uh awareness and training and more social emotional learning because unless we really start at a much earlier age we're just going to continue to have these outrageous numbers of, of suicides and you know substance abuses so we really got to start addressing this you know stuff earlier so that would be my kind of big takeaway to leave with you and you know we're definitely would love to connect with people on the film and uh you know see what we can do to help you or your community or your organization enhance your mental health and wellness and your uh you know empower youth in the process so Thanks for letting us be on. So myascension.us, I'm glad we brought up the 988 number. Um, I want to give you another video series out there about chronic mental illness and the resource available called Healing Minds NOLA. Healing Minds NOLA, meaning New Orleans. So it's Healing Minds NOLA, N-O-L-A. Emma, your last thoughts. Uh, I'm just so grateful and appreciative for this opportunity. Like Greg said, um, I knew that sharing my story was going to be a challenging journey, but it's certainly been one of the most rewarding journeys, um, mainly because by me sharing my story and sharing my testimony and my truth, it's allowed others to then step forward and get out of that denial that we were talking about and let other people know that they're struggling and to reach out for help. So that's my biggest piece is I just want to encourage people who are struggling to know that it is okay not to be okay and you're not alone. And it is not a weakness to reach out for help. It's a sign of strength. So that's my my takeaway for you. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I appreciate uh, you so much getting out there and making a difference. This is this to me is the problem of our time. This is, you know, you want to even point at all the divisions in this country and all the acrimony and all that stuff. Underneath it is a lot of this stuff, too. So 
thank you for being a part of the solution. Uh, so we'll look forward to what you do. You guys do next. Thank you, guys. Thank awesome. You Thanks so much, Doctor Drew. Appreciate it. You bet. And uh, coming up tomorrow, coming up Thursday, Ed Lattimore. Uh, he's got some interesting ideas. A former professional heavyweight bo boxer, and now he's got some interesting ideas. Uh, he just uh, an interesting guy. I've seen him on Twitter for a long time. Grew up poor, public housing. He's he's got his own sort of mm, ideas about how to how to get get us get, get get into the solution. And I'm anxious to hear from Ed. And uh, as I said, in about a week, we're going to have the urologist in here. And one of our locals users was very interested in addressing the issue of ch uh, childhood sexual abuse and pelvic pain and urinary problems, that kind of thing, which are exquisitely common. So, Susan, anything else before we uh, say farewell here? Make sure you go to drgu.com slash shop and use the code Drew to get a discount on your bobblehead, there everybody. It is. There, I knew that was coming up here. She needs to move those bobbleheads. <laughs> no. Where do we go store? They're so cute. Drew.com slash shop. We still, I keep saying this, we owe Leopold a visit here. And I think uh, Harley or something, is that who else is yeah. up here? Yeah, Leopold and Harley need, need to have their own visit. And we got to do that for we them. We haven't been around, we, I guess. I know. We've been... Run, we've been. Um, they don't seem like they're in a hurry. Eh, it's been our fault. Let's be fair. We, we, we've been... Uh, Anytime. Yeah. All right. Well, I haven't heard from Leopold in a minute, so we'll get that going. Uh, let me look at Rumble. Really He's quick. living his life. He's on vacation. He was on vacation for quite a while. Um, mm -mm, people are advocating faith-based stuff. People are worried about medication, which I don't blame you. I really don't. Uh, but you know, these are very serious illnesses and, uh, you have to be with people that give a shit about the care of the, the patient, which is something we're losing in medicine. If I hope COVID taught everybody that, uh, certainly taught me that. Adam Kroll is going to be on um, Gutfeld tonight. tonight. Yep. Uh, so that should be very interesting. We had a conversation with Greg about that last Wednesday after we went out to dinner with I him. I told Crystal. You told Crystal about our conversation? Yeah. That he's, but they did a podcast first, so hopefully they'll be able to iron out their... Uh, Good. Get, the, get their rhythm. Their right. evil minds together. Fair enough. Those two both remind me kind of each other. Bit? I yeah. Get, I, get, I, I don't just Very creative. The two of them. Creative. Interesting combo. All right. Uh, so we will uh, be with you guys tomorrow and Thursday at 3 o'clock Pacific time. And uh, let me look at next week. We're here. Anthony Howard Brown is in the house. I saw that. And we are here all through next week as well, right? Went Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yes. And maybe Friday yes. also. I don't know. about. We'll see about Friday. Maybe, yeah. I know. It's we'll up see. to Caleb, but... We're also thinking of bringing back a calling out, too. Ah. I'm trying to set that up. Okay. Caleb, everything good with you? Any other questions? Oh, yes. Concerns? Oh, yeah. Everything's going great. I'm, uh, yeah, right. doing great. Camden's Baby's turning good. one in two days. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe that. Amazing. Wow. All right, everybody. We will see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific. Ta-ta. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 
273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.